Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, a place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good afternoon. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today we're sitting down with Lindley Nixon. She owns a certified organic vegetable farm in southern Colorado with her husband and brother. She holds a PhD in plant pathology from the University of Florida and a master's in soil science from West Virginia University in organic farming systems. In 20 2018, she began the pilot program for the Real Organic Project Certification and is now the co-director with Vermont Organic Farmer Dave Chapman. Real Organic Project is a farmer-led add-on organic certification that certifies farms that foster healthy soils, pastures, livestock, and are committed to organic principles across their agricultural enterprises. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Liz. Wow, that was a mouthful. Good job. (laughs) Well, uh, you know what? I love this topic because, as I mentioned before, we've been trying to paint the picture of organic Mm -hmm. in several episodes, and it's really, really hard to do. Oh, I just dropped my phone. It's hard to tackle because there's so much confusion. Plant agriculture, animal agriculture, what is organic? So we're super excited to chat with you today. So before we dive in, I gave a short bio, but take us back to kind of where you got an interest in any of this uh, from the beginning. Well, I loved that you said there's a lot of confusion because that's absolutely true. And we always say that if you're not confused, then you're not paying attention. And I I got started kind of in a similar, at least into this kind of policy work. I've always wanted to be a farmer and have been farming uh, just from the very beginning. I mean, I was that weird kid that knocked on our neighbor's doors for their compost scraps and, you know, was just (laughs) digging and burying organic matter in the soil playing around with, uh, I, was, I grew up in Baltimore City, so I was playing around with having a garden. And then I always worked on farms through high school, and I always knew someday I would start my own farm. But um, went to graduate school, only had four uh, post, you know, uh, after I graduated. So graduate work, uh, four universities had organic systems, and it was um, West Virginia University that I ended up. Of course, now there's so many more places that have um, you know, just the ability to study organic farming um, and have organic farms affiliated with the university. And that's probably one of the benefits of the USDA program is that, you mm-hmm. know, in the year 2000, that's when all of these um, regulations kind of were enacted. And it really opened the door for some funding for organic research. And now there's several choices. But before that, it was kind of cutting edge to study organic. And it was also, um, controversial believe it or not like it was like the weird people at the universities like we're over in the corner here studying organic systems and and it was like you know seen as you know maybe not so modern or um you know the people that that were studying it felt a little bit um they they had to have thick skin because there was a lot of criticism Mm. um, from within the system to actually even look at whether or not this was possible and of course at the time all the professors that I had that were not part of the organic program, I had to take kind of a wide diversity of classes and they would just bash it. They would say, you know, farming is hard and you need these chemicals in order, you know, for the farmers to to make a living. And so it's just overcoming so much kind of prior knowledge of, of that we need chemicals to feed the world. And of course, now as the USDA organic standards have been greenwashed, they're using the same language. You know, we need to kind of reduce mm-hmm the integrity and organic in order to feed the world organic you don't want it to be this elite Mm. thing so we're taking some of the same language and and trying to you know apply it to actually reduce the the integrity in the organic program 
Um, so I, I wow. tend to go all over the place. What was your question again? You covered it. I just <laughs> okay. want to know your interest point. And okay, so you mentioned lowering the integrity of the USDA organic label. I want to dive into this because I want to know more. What does this mean? Yeah, so I think that pressure has always been there. So the the Organic Foods Production Act passed in 1990, and it took 10 years to come up with actual standards to to be implemented on farms. And so it wasn't until the year 2000 that this really took off. And of course, there were all of these groups around the country that had been certifying organic standards for you know since the 1980s. So for you know at least 20 mm-hmm. years, this had already been happening on a local level, and there was a lot of integrity. Um, but the farmers started to ask for a government program because they would see that their neighbor at the farmer's market was using the word organic, but they weren't certified with MAFCA or CCOF or, you know, or one of these local groups. And, and there was no way to kind of regulate that term. And it's interesting, you can see it happening now outside of organic. So you might you know, choose a different word to describe yourself if you're not certified organic. And, you know, you could say that you're an ecological farm or a natural farm or a regenerative farm. And when your neighbor next door starts to use those words and you have different definitions of what that means, you know, that's why the organic farmers actually came to the government and said, we need some help here. We're seeing this word used where it shouldn't be. And it was very controversial at the time. So when I said it was a little bit controversial for me to be studying organic systems and I'm 45, you can imagine the farmers back in the 70s and 80s when they uh, decided they, you know, were going to do organic. And I remember some of the farmers saying that they were called, that they were doing voodoo agriculture. And so it was even more fringe back then. Um, but the whole idea was just to kind of normalize organic as a real way of producing food that was legitimate and that could get funding for research and that could actually have enforcement at the national level for use of that word. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing as a farmer to be able to know your customer directly. And so organic certification isn't for a lot of smaller farms that can just go to the organic, uh, the you know, the local uh, farmer's market and say, you know, come to my farm any day. I'll show you how I farm. And they really know the people that they're exchanging food with. And that's a beautiful thing. And you can describe, you know, how you farm in any way that you like. But where it gets really confusing is, you know, 99% of the food or more is purchased at grocery stores or at restaurants. And if you want any way to actually be uh, guaranteed that what you're eating isn't isn't sprayed or is produced in a certain way, you need regulations. And with that comes good and bad. So we can talk about mm-hmm. what's gone wrong specifically. Um, but the idea of starting over and with a new word and thinking that it's not going to happen again, I think these are kind of universal problems that no matter what word you pick, as soon as there's money involved and there's a higher price point mm-hmm. under that word, there is going to be greenwashing unless there's Mm -hmm. enforcement behind what that word means. And even when there's enforcement, there are problems. So I think where the organic community is really strong is actually in our movement, is in these direct relationships. And so that's why the Real Organic Project kind of formed with all the original farmers that kind of launched the USDA program in the first place and said, I don't think this is where we wanted to end up. And let's see if we can come back together and re-communicate to the world what organic means you know, whether or not USDA organic, 
uh, has those values right now or not. We can talk about it. Um, but they felt that it was time to just kind of come forward and say, you know, we've, we've gone a little off track. We need to re-educate everybody about what we mean as farmers when we say organic, and then hopefully apply some pressure, political pressure to increase enforcement at the USDA. Mm. Yeah, get into specifics, like what specifically has gone wrong with the USDA organic label? So it started early. It started right right off the bat. Um, One of the biggest ones is that outdoor access is required. That's the language, outdoor access for poultry, for example. And Mm -hmm. some people interpreted that to mean, when I say people, I mean lawyers and bureaucrats, (laughs) interpreted that to mean like a little porch off the side of a confinement building where, you know, hens were laying eggs or something like that. So then lawyers got involved. And because the word pasture wasn't there, uh, outdoor access uh, meant, meant a cement porch off the side of a building. And of course, there's no reason for a chicken to even go outside into these small little porches because there's no dirt or bugs to peck around it, no dust bathing, you know, no insects. So it really isn't at all what we meant when we said outdoor access when we created the rule. The other way it's gone really wrong is um, when it comes to dairy. So if you think about the fact that you have to milk a dairy cow twice a day, and some of the larger operations are milking three, four times a day, and then get that cow back out to pasture. So there are pasture requirements under the organic label. And it didn't start out that way, but it's actually an example of the pasture rule being a way that you know we worked and lobbied to increase the standards. So now there's this pasture rule under organic where at least 30% of the dry matter intake of the cow has to be from living pasture. And you can imagine that if you're milking and bringing those cows in, these aren't beef cattle, you have to bring them back to a building at least twice a day and then walk them back out. And you can put them out where there's grass, but if there's nothing to eat, that's not considered pasture. So you can imagine you're going to get further and further away the larger your herd is to actually find something to eat. So for dairy, it's really a case where it's scale limiting. There's only so many cows that you can bring back to the same milking parlor and then get back out to pasture where there's actually pasture to eat. And so there's been a lot of pressure to kind of look the other way. And uh, there's a lot of these mega dairies, about 10,000 cows, and they're in my home state of Colorado on the Front Range. Aurora Dairy is kind of the famous one. Uh, Natural Prairie Dairy has up to 15,000 cows, and they're expanding. And when you have you know, certified organic milk that, that that's that big, And they're not actually, you know, maybe the cows are outside, but that's not where they're getting their diet. Um, Then, you know, the actual enforcement is going wrong. So the rule, that's a case where the rule is good. So like with the poultry porches, the rule wasn't good. Now we have a case where the rule is good, but it's not being enforced. And you can imagine it's putting all of these small dairy farmers that are following the rule out of business because the milk that's coming out of these 10,000 cow dairies is just so much cheaper. And so we used to, there was a a study that came out and it, there were, you know, uh, 500 small dairy farms that were certified organic in Wisconsin. And there were only six in Texas. And those six mega dairies were out producing 
by 25% more all of the Wisconsin farms. And of course, that number has gone way down over time. And so you can see the implications. You know, there's always this argument from the USDA or from people that really want to weaken the organic standards by saying, we don't want organic to be elitist. You know, we want everybody to be able to afford organic food. And you're kind of, your heart reaches out because you agree. But you want it to actually be organic food. Otherwise, we'd just stick an organic label on everything, right? Mm-hmm. So there has, there's been real um, cases where um, the law hasn't been right or enforcement hasn't been right. And, and the implications are that actually small farms end up going out of business. And in Europe, they've actually had such a better um, enforcement of the rule. And there's a lot of integrity. And their organic is growing faster than ours is. And so the idea is that actually when you have integrity, more people can access it and the program grows because you don't have all of these other labels coming out. So now you can see pasture on lots of different things in the grocery store, but but organic isn't always with it. Often it's not with it. And so maybe they're feeding conventional grain, but they're giving the chickens pasture. And then you're stuck. You're like, gosh, well, I want my chickens to have pasture, but I also don't want to support this GMO grain that they're being fed. So mm-hmm. when you have high integrity, it's actually, you know, based on what's happening in Europe, the program actually grows as opposed to, you know, having all these other standards. And then people, like you said, people just get confused. Mm-hmm. Here's my question, because we just had someone on who has a 12,000, 12, 10,000 cows? 12, I think it was 000. 12. Um, he's not certified organic, uh, but he was explaining for that- dairy, it, For dairy. For mm-hmm. dairy. He was explaining that same conundrum where, because I was like, why aren't your cows on pasture? I was totally oblivious. I didn't know. He's like, we can't bring 12,000 cows out on pasture and bring them into milk twice a day. We could yeah. never do that. Yeah. So he's- Which makes sense. Totally makes sense. So he's cutting, uh, he's still growing feed and that's how he, the whole conversation was about him closing the loop and, and it was, he has some really, really cool innovative practices he's performing, but he's not organic, he's not non-GMO, none of those things. But he's growing on his farm, cutting that, bringing it to the cows so that there's good access and then the cows are still outside. Is there a world where, like, what are we... Explain to me the, the benefits of having truly pastured cows for dairy. Because for us, we buy raw milk from our local farm who has like four cows. So, oh, you're so we, lucky. we don't, yes, we are so lucky and we don't even have to worry about grocery store milk. But for those who are purchasing grocery store milk, explain to them the difference between here's one tier of, hey, at least you're growing your own food and that's amazing and you're able to produce high quality milk. That's awesome. The next level up, which is what you're talking about, having cows on pasture, explain to us the benefits of both the cow health and for the pasture in that scenario where the true organic label would be representing actual integrity. There are so many different practices that should be included in the organic standards. So I'll just talk about what real organic dairy looks like and why it's beneficial both to the customer and to the health of the cows and to the health of the land. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a simple statement if you don't want to dive into the details. If you could just remember that animals were meant to walk about and feed was meant to stay in place, like grass stays in place. And and so Mm -hmm. anytime you kind of break that rule of nature, you're going to use a lot of fossil fuels to reverse that. And then you've got a lot of animals pooping in one spot. So you're going to need to figure out how to distribute that manure back onto the land. 
That requires a lot of fossil fuels. And most of the dairies are using these lagoons. So they'll spray down where the cows are standing. And then all of that washes into lagoons. And a lot of methane comes off of those lagoons from the anaerobic fermentation of that liquid. And then you're using, then you're spraying it, like aerosol spraying it back out onto the fields. And that, if you're downwind of that, causes a lot of respiratory problems for people um, you know, that live downwind of, of that system. So ideally, your cows are being rotated and their manure is staying in place right where it's needed. And their manure isn't in this weird liquid form that, that's give, giving off a lot more methane. Um, they're also not standing on cement. So a lot of those confined cows have hoof problems and um, just, just other health problems because they're living on like cold cement. They'll scratch themselves. It's not a comfortable lifestyle for just animal welfare. You, you want, you know, your cows out on kind of comfortable and, and walking. You know, a lot of these uh, cows that walk back and forth, they don't have any hoof problems because they're actually using, you know, their hooves by, by walking every day. And so they don't they don't have similar problems. So there's a lot of um, different reasons just for the health of the animal and animal welfare to have them out on pasture. Um, the health of the land, you know, I was talking about how you want to kind of rotate those cows and you can even actually get higher production. So if that farmer that you were talking about would would actually kind of mob graze and and give new pasture after each milking uh, if you time that right and it's really an art because that changes with the rainflow um, to to rotate your cows and then you can gather hay for the winter um, you, you know you get a huge flush of grass kind of in the spring and it's more than your cows are able to take in so then you you would make some hay but then think about when your your cows are confined in the winter do you want to have that system where you're kind of washing them all down and then creating those methane ponds that then if you get a storm, often those will over, overflow and run out into the waterways. But what real organic farmers do is they'll actually put bedding down and then you've got this warm compost pile. So they'll put bedding down, fresh bedding down every day. And that's a, like a, just a much more comfortable way to exist. And then you've created a solid uh, carbon nit nitrogen ratio. I don't know if you guys talk about composting, but that's like one of my mm -hmm. favorite topics. I could talk about compost forever. Then you've created this beautiful compost that doesn't leach out into the environment. And you can then apply that at the appropriate time when it's not so wet and you're not doing damage. Um, so that's, that's what winter looks like in a real organic barn. And so it's, you know, it's so many reasons. I didn't even talk about human health, the difference. Um, so, so you could, there's a lot of hundred percent grass fed milk out there. And if you look at those rules, you know, you can feed sugar beets. That counts as 100% grass fed. You can feed, feed dry hay. And uh, there have been all these studies that show that the uh, there's so many different oils. There's 500 different oils in your raw organic milk. And we don't even know what all of them do. But we do know that there's a much higher concentration of like omega-3s to omega-6s when, when the cows are eating fresh pasture not cut and dried hay that comes in. So the health of the milk is actually different. Um, the conjugated linoleic acids are good for you and those are higher in pastured cows. So, so it's really the health of the land, the health of the animal welfare of the cow and the health of the people eating it. That, so it's, it's all the reasons why you wanna just have your animals moving on fresh pasture. For mm -hmm. dairy specifically, people are gonna hear this and be like, okay, I'm like, I'm so in, I'm so excited or like my mind is blown. And now what? Where do when I go to the grocery store, right? There's going to be all kinds of 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 
packaged milk that is got organic. It's gonna it's gonna say you know natural raised. It's gonna say you know it might even, yeah yeah um, yeah. We're looking for the best milk for the planet, but also the best for our bodies, right? That's kind of what we're that, that would be best case scenario. Yeah. And if if Lindley, if you were walking to the grocery store for some reason and you were gonna buy some milk, uh, yeah. what were what would be some of the things that you'd be looking for? I know it's impossible. And I am lucky like you, and I have a dairy two miles up the road that gives me raw milk. So that is your best option. I just want people to know if that exists, even if you're afraid of raw milk, um, go ahead and buy it. And then I know people who have the same herd share and they just use the temperature to, to you know, um, do the pasteurization themselves. You're going to have a much higher quality for your body if you can do that. When I go into the grocery store, um, because my, my local dairy, it's um, seasonal, so they don't have mm-hmm. milk during the winter. Um, it's, it's hard because milk is pooled. And so there are certain brands like Organic Valley that I know are, you know, largely composed of small farms. But one of the problems is that it's not an entirely transparent system. So you can have these brands, Kelowna is another one where I know that a lot of the farms are really great, but they don't, they're not fully transparent. So they could have a list of all these amazing farms. And then they also are getting from some of these mega dairies in order to compete out there. So dairy is such a difficult uh, space in the marketplace to actually survive. And because there's so much of this false advertising and, you know, kind of greenwashing under the label, all of these organic brands or pasture brands that aren't really doing what they say they're doing have such a low price point that's actually putting these better brands under pressure to take in some of this certified organic milk or pastured milk. That's not really what we want it to be. And even though they're sourcing from some great farms, they're also subsidizing that volume with some that aren't so good. And so that's why we're striving so hard to push for real transparency behind the USDA organic seal so that we can at least see, you know, just show your supply list. And they say, oh, dairy farmers, you know, they don't want to give out where they live and, and you know, release that information, which is just pure bogus. Like, it's really not a big deal. It's not like everybody's going to go visit these farms once they see the list. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's just not a real concern. So, so greater transparency would be huge. And that's one of the things that we're if we create this add on seal that provides that it's going to put pressure on USDA and, you know, we can continue to lobby for these things, but for 20 years, we haven't been winning, which is why the farmers came together and said, okay, we need to apply some marketplace pressure while we're lobbying for these changes. Mm. It makes me so thankful for access to raw milk. And in the state of Ohio, I don't know how it is in Colorado, but the state of Ohio, we're a herd share state Mm -hmm. or a private membership association. So you have to have a contractual agreement, which sounds scary, but I just filled out paperwork one time almost eight years ago. Yeah. And what that allows you to do is access raw milk because you basically own a portion of a cow. And so as an owner, their milk is also kind of it belongs to you. Other states, their laws are changing all the time. I forget there was a recent state that just switched over. Some people have access where you can actually buy it on the farm. You just have to travel to the farm. So the laws just regulate Mm -hmm. whether or not that raw milk can be distributed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can buy it at a farmer's market. Sometimes in other states like California, you can buy it right off the shelf. Mm -hmm. So I want people to feel encouraged that, um, with the exception, I believe, of the state of Nevada, unfortunately, raw milk is accessible in every single state in the U.S. right now. 
Now, the question of is it affordable for your family? How accessible? Are you driving two, four hours? I don't know. That stuff for you can look through um, the realmilk.com milk finder, which is super awesome. But yeah, it makes me super thankful to have access directly to my producer because you're right, the grocery store, I think milk and dairy are the hardest things to kind of look through. Um, I want to talk about plant agriculture though too because we get a lot of questions around organic produce specifically. So talk to us about where the USDA label um, holds up well and then what are maybe some of the pitfalls. The whole reason why we were started was because of a slip in regulations on crops. And so when hydroponic production was just kind of slipping under the label, it's actually never been passed by the National Organic Standards Board to be allowed. But the National Organic Program just kind of unilaterally decided that it should be allowed. And really, that's from pressure from some of these mega uh, corporations that are using it. So, um, like Driscoll's and Wholesome Harvest, they're, they're huge brands that are hydroponic, um, and organic and have applied and Driscoll's was a big player at the time because they had a national organic standards board member, um, on the board at the time. And there was a lot of production already, um, in hydroponics. And so it was one of those instances when the organic community really showed up and said, no, organic farming, you know, involves the health of the soil here. It's written into the law. The rest of the world doesn't allow hydroponic production. So the USDA is going rogue on this one. And we really turned up to just, you know, explain this is not what the organic movement is about and what it wants. And it didn't make one difference. You know, (laughs) the National Organic Program uh, didn't care. And so that's that's why actually the Real Organic Project formed is because all of these farmers had organized and gotten together, applied political pressure, failed and said, guess what? we were the ones that started this word in the first place, you know, let's just go ahead and see if we can maintain the integrity ourselves. And so we actually have a farmer led uh, standards board, just like the uh, national organic standards board that decides our standards. And we're going around and doing the inspections ourselves. What happened was when that um, controversial decision kind of didn't play out um, the way we had hoped, it really divided the organic uh, inspectors and certification bodies. So there were some like CCOF is probably the biggest certification organization that has allowed, um, hydroponic certification. If you think about it, these huge businesses, you pay according to kind of what your gross profits are. And that's how much it's kind of relative. Um, you know, that's how much it costs to get certified. So there was a lot of financial pressure to certify these operations. And, um, most of the rest of the country, um, so like one cert's even in Nebraska, so even kind of from the middle of the country on, um, they all have not allowed it. And so now you have a situation where, you know, you've even got dissent in the certifiers for what can be allowed organic. And the whole idea behind creating the National Organic Program was that we would have one standard. And so it's really created a lot of um, tension in the organic community um, over this one issue. And, and really, it's um, exactly what happened in the milk is that it's just so much cheaper to produce hydroponically um, that it's not like, let's make a big tent, let's let everybody in. It's like, no, this is so much cheaper. What's going to happen is all of these soil-grown operations are going to go out of business because the price point is just so low 
for certain crops that are really easy and productive to be hydroponically grown. So there's cucumbers, tomatoes, basil and herbs, um, peppers, and these are berries. Berries is a big one. Actually, my farm is all soil grown and we were a diversified CSA farm, but then we started to realize there were certain crops that were really profitable and we were good at producing them and kind of wanted to hone in on them. And shockingly, it's like the exact same five crops that I just listed. So the really profitable crops also happen to be the ones that you can produce well hydroponically. So it's putting a lot of pressure on the soil-based farms financially um, to the point where we cannot sell our tomatoes or cucumbers or peppers or herbs at a price point that works anymore wholesale. So it's making a lot of us shrink down our operations, try to figure out how to direct market again, because the price point is just so low for us. And you know, you talk to the National Organic Program and they say, well, isn't that wonderful? Now everybody can afford organic. And it really does just change, you know, not only what is available um, in the supermarket, you don't even have a choice anymore, right? It's not like here's the hydroponic organic and here's the soil grown organic. There, there's the same label out there. And because it's so much cheaper, that's the only thing that exists. So it's really just changed what's mm. offered for, for consumers. Let's talk about hydroponic farming a little bit. And I think I know what it is. And if y'all are interested, I can like try to explain it, but it might be better if, 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 if you were to explain hydroponic sure. farming and then I'd be curious to talk through the, the, like, I mean, obviously it's cheaper and easier right? And they're not using soil. But I'd be curious to kind of open up that discussion of like, I have some opinions and nutrient density of that kind of food. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. Uh, Let let us have it. Yeah, I'll try to be as basic as possible. And we can dive into a conversation. But really, if you think about it, the most sustainable way to farm is to walk out with like a shovel and some seeds. It's also a, a pretty kind of democratic way to do it because anybody can access it. If you think about the costs of starting up a hydroponic facility, it's really a big plastic farm. So what they do is they laser level the land, they put down a layer of plastic. A lot of it's in greenhouses, but if they're if they're trying to do it, um, you know, for berries, for example, uh, this is how they're doing it, or in hoop houses. So they laser level, they put the plastic down, they place the plastic pots, then they put in the plastic irrigation tubing, then they've got plastic overhead because these plants don't want to be rained on at all um, because that would affect kind of the dilution of the nutrient solution that goes through. So everything is purchased. And that's a really unsustainable way to farm. If you think about trying to be sustainable yourself, you're like, okay, I'm not going to purchase a lot of clothes. You know, you kind of reduce the things that you don't need, but everybody needs to eat. And so we can eat from farms that are actually out there trying to grow their own fertility. If you, I don't know if you've ever had a biodynamic farmer, but, but that's kind of like closing all the loops, right? And that's that's what organic systems are also about. So the law talks about, you know, fostering soil fertility through cover crops and crop rotations and mulching. All these things are in the law and hydroponics is completely out of that system. So, you know, I hate to just say, well, the law says it, that's why it should be so, but there's all these environmental reasons, the health and the taste of the vegetables is so different. Like, mm. I don't know if you've ever, I've done this, like where I grow strawberries in a pot and you, you eat them and then you go grow the same strawberries in the same location in the soil. And there's just this complexity to flavor. So you know that there's something going on different nutrient wise when you can taste that difference. So it's, again, it's just like the dairy. There's, there's, you know, personal health reasons why you wouldn't choose hydroponic. There's land health reasons. And then, you know, all of the sustainability issues with just 
these disposable plastic farms that they erect and then they toss out five years later and start all over again. You can imagine the plastic waste that's involved. All right, Liz, what are Not your thoughts? Mention, <laughs> uh, yes, I'm so excited. Okay, I loved that description, by the way, because you painted it beautifully. And you're right, digging in the soil is the most democratic way to farm. That's a fantastic soundbite right there. Here's the thing. Here's my issue with it. Okay, well, one, we're not benefiting any soil in hydroponics. Mm. Two, how much of the U.S. water is contaminated with PFAS at this point or pharmaceuticals mm. or whatever? Are you telling me you're filtering this properly? There's just no way. Mm. What is this nutrient solution made of? What, like, what is the quality? So it's like a fertilizer. Is that what we're calling you, this? It's like a fertilizer? No, no, it's, that... it's whatever is making this stuff grow. Yeah, would you call it fertilizer? It's a fertilizer. It's an organically approved fertilizer. And there's lots of different ways to get this fertility organically. So they're actually like catching big forage fish in these big nets. And so it's fish emulsion is one of the ways, but most of them, one of the most common ways is to take, and they, they allow conventional soybeans. Um, and they, so they take the soybeans and they pro heavily process it into this, it's almost like a soy sauce, but it's less salty for the plants. All these amino acids break down and just the energy use alone of using conventional soybeans and then this high intensity to hydrolyze the soybeans to make it so that it's nutrient available, that's now an organic fertilizer and that's approved. With all that energy use, why is it so economical? It's Oh, why is it so cheap? Yeah. Because we Maybe subsidize all of these things, right? Uh, so we're okay. paying for it just in a different way, not at the grocery store's shelf. We're paying for it because that's where our tax dollars go. So the sticker, the sticker price is cheap, but we're paying taxes that are continuing to go up because we're subsidizing farms that are certified in some fashion organically. No, because we're subsidizing the conventional growth of the soybeans, right? So that's conventional growth cheap. of the soybeans. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Okay. What a mess, huh? See, That's see, why like, this, you this need farms that are just like, pull the plug on the USDA. It's gone so wrong. Yeah. And I totally relate to that. But then where are we? Right? It's mm -hmm. like, then it's a free for all and anybody can say anything they want. And we're really in a mess. So it's almost like public schools. Like when your public school system's a mess, do you just want to everybody start <laughs> charter schools, which is a great idea. I'd probably send my kid to a charter school if my public schools were a mess. But you also want the system to work. Right. So it's it's one of those really frustrating conundrums, like what do we do? And so the Real Organic Project has taken this. OK, we're going to continue to fight for a political form, but we cannot wait. We keep losing. So let's do some marketplace pressure in the form of like the charter school so we can like maybe do both at the same time and see if we can create change more quickly. So it's actually like this great pool of it's not politically sided. We've got Democrats and Republicans that are all kind of excited about the idea of, of kind of going after. Actually, there's three facets because the third one is is the marketplace education, you know, actually getting on podcasts. And we do a lot of podcasts and, and symposia as well to educate people on these issues. Just try to tackle it in all the different directions. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. So you were you went to school, you went to university for these sorts of topics. And well, what were the not views really, like of those? <laughs> but yeah, okay. no, so understand organic agriculture, soil science and biology, but I wasn't in the political realm and I've gotten much more political as I started to understand the biology of all of this. I want this to be the way we farm. And that takes a turn for, you know, political change. It's just interesting if universities are teaching this and I'm assuming they are. You learned this in, did you learn a lot of this in school? Like how to farm organically the right way? 
Correct. Yeah, yeah. So if you're part of an organic program, which like I said, there weren't very many, I think there's so much more now, you absolutely learn this. You're not learning how to grow hydroponically. You're At least I wasn't. And um, that's not what I hear is happening in organic programs. You're learning about cover crops and what they do, you, things like that. Biological control, you know, which is where you release some ladybugs to eat your aphids, things like that. Mm. It, it was just, it's something where it feels like when, when like the education, like when, when education, like commercial education, I don't know what you would call it, public education catches up to one of these sorts of things that then creeps into politics mm. typically. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, why is this not kind of catching up more? Mm. Well, you mean just organic in general? Yeah. Why is there? I, mean, I think it goes back to what. Is that yeah, your? It yeah. seems to be disconnected. It seems like yeah. yeah. It seems like we're teaching about soil health and and I mean this even the stuff that you know about hydroponic farming. I'm like, is is this stuff that you've learned recently, or was there some of this that you learned in in at the college level? Yeah, I mean, the first introductory to organic agriculture, you learn feed the soil, not the plant which means you feed it the soil organic matter for the microbes to kind of break down slowly. And when you do that, you actually don't have any nutrient runoff. So you learn the environmental reasons of why you're trying to increase the organic matter in your soil. It's organic agriculture, right? Organic means mm -hmm. uh, carbon-based, um, you know, life-giving material. So if you study organic chemistry, you're studying the chemistry of life. And so organic farming mm -hmm. is incorporating organic matter into the soil. That's the simple definition. Um, and there's so many reasons why you want that um, that organic matter to kind of break down slowly by soil life. And we can kind of dive into the biology if you're interested. But it's just this really environmental way to farm, right? You capture carbon. You don't have that nutrient runoff. It's like only 20% of the nitrogen that's applied to land for fertilizer is actually incorporated into the plant. And that's what organic systems are trying to, to get out of that kind of cycle of just over application of all these surface fertilizers that just run off the land. So you learn that in Organic 101, like first day, feed the soil, not the plant with organic matter. I love that. This is my other beef with hydroponics. Okay. And it's, I'm going to go off of the, I'm going to turn it back on them because this is straight from their marketing campaign. We have a giant hydroponic farm near us called 80 Acres and their whole name is because they're supposed to represent 80 acres worth of production in their giant facility that costs energy and all that. Well, anyways, their commercial, their advertising is all about how these plants are just pampered to the max. It literally has like a carrot looking like it's in a spa and these plants have the exact nutrient profile that they need. And yes, they don't use pesticides or herbicides because why would they? They're not growing things in nature. But these these plants are just like, like I said, pampered. And and for me, people look at that like, wow, they have such a wonderful, they've dialed it in. They figured it out how to grow things perfectly. And for me, I'm like, if you know anything about nature, struggle is good. And shame on you for telling us that struggle is like not a part of growing natural human or natural plant life or natural animal life. Like, I don't want my carrot to be freaking pampered. Then it's not going to know. Like, under stress, we take in things that we need. And yeah. so, or like, 
it's also symbiotic with our environment. And so when you take the growing thing out of a natural environment, I'm sorry, there's just nothing there. Mm. That's the part that frustrates me is this like all hail technology, super nice. We've dialed it in. It's incredible, innovative. And I'm like, that's not innovative. That's commercialized, industrialized and incredibly profitable for few people. Okay, that's what that is. So that's the end. Of and my like life. to summarize, hydroponic farming essentially after this discussion, I'm learning right that is not necessarily the most, not necessarily the most. You see how ridiculous I am. It doesn't sound like it's the most um, environmentally friendly from a using plastic material to set the whole shop up to the amount of I'm guessing energy and fossil fuel or whatever else it, it costs to maintain the farm plus we're using a lot of synthetics that are harvested from conventional conventional sources to to supplement the nutrients that these you know pampered carrots need (laughs) and then uh and then on top of that now um where i i'm kind of now reading in a little bit the nutrient density of that food then is severely different i'm asking than a is that true Yes, there's a wonderful book uh, called What Your Food Ate. And it's by Anne Buckley and David Montgomery. And it's sourced, there's like 50 pages of these small, fine print sourcing of scientific literature that demonstrates the health benefits of, of soil and, and the food. Um, and if you think about it, Liz, you, you kind of like have this intuition that the complexity in a plant that's like getting, you know, maybe a few insect bites here and there. I think you're right on because um, what I studied when I was in graduate school was the defense mechanism of a plant and how that communication happens through mycorrhizal fungi. And so it produces Mm -hmm. some antioxidants when there's a little bit of insect pressure. And that actually kicks on a defense response in the plant. And I was studying whether that could be communicated to a plant that had never had that insect and and turns out it is. It was salicylic acid is is actually goes right through the mycorrhizal fungi. And there's a methylated form of salicylic acid that then goes through the air that can be detected between plants. And that's just one compound. There's literally hundreds of thousands of plant compounds that we don't even know what they are. And so we are just kind of scratching the tip of the iceberg, you know, scratching the surface on what is going on in a plant when there's wind even you know when there's a little because then you know all the fibers in the plant leaves start to kind of toughen up you should see how weak these plants are that are growing under the artificial lights right what is the difference between natural light and the artificial light there's so many differences never mind the life in the soil and you know you get a little nibble from a nematode on a root right or or you get that acceptance of the mycorrhizal fungi and the interactions there so the chemistry the organic chemistry that's going on between all of this life is something that is probably we have evolved with. So it's probably pretty healthy and more just more diverse. And all of those antioxidants, you know, those chemicals that respond to defense, that those are antioxidants. We know that they are helpful in in preventing cancer and are healthy. So even if we don't know what, what they are, just kind of that humbleness in the presence of like the way nature works and how we evolved to eat these things. You know, we, we, I think organic farmers are good at just kind of recognizing when, you know, a natural system and, and trying to work within those natural systems and seeing that those are better than, than what we can create, but we're not Luddites, Mm -hmm. right? We're going to 
talk to each other about kind of these low till ideas. And, you know, we're trying to figure out how to do this better and better. And, you know, what's your cover cropping mix in your system? And, you know, how did that work for yeah. you? So we're constantly pushing the boundary, but just in different ways, right? Mm. Yeah, let's talk about the most controversial portion of the USDA organic, perhaps, is the use of certain pesticides and herbicides. And how do you, people get so confused because they think organic means no pesticides and herbicides, but that's not the case. So break down what it means under the USDA label. So there's about 200, basically the rule is if it's naturally occurring, you can use it unless it's on a list of prohibited naturally occurring materials. And if it's synthetic, you can't use it unless it's on a list of synthetics that we deem to be safe. And that's what that National Organic Standards Board, that's their main job, is to decide whether or not these substances should be allowed in organic. And I have to say, I really, after going to those meetings for 10 years, I really respect that process. So that has all gone really well. That list of approved substances, I actually you know, think that those are safe synthetics. Where it's gone wrong is that you're, you should only be using those in the case of an emergency. They shouldn't be this kind of proactive, I'm going to spray this every week just in case, or I'm going to use this fertilizer for the entire system of fertility, not just because I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of a nutrient deficiency. You know, maybe my cover crops aren't breaking down as quickly because it's not raining as much. It's a little dry. I might need to boost with a little fish fertilizer right now. It shouldn't be the entire, that's all you feed the plant, right? So it's been the interpretation of that national list, which should be when all of your natural systems, you know, your beneficials, um, sorry, the, the, the plots that you use to increase beneficials. So all of those kind of flowering beneficial plants should be harboring the insects that will then control your, your pests. When that system isn't working well for whatever reason, that's when you go to this national list of approved substances and you're, you're supposed to be allowed to use this occasionally. I actually mm. feel like it's just been misinterpreted to be like your entire system can't depend on these things. So that's, that's mm -hmm. kind of the whole idea. It was just kind of pushing it towards continuous improvement and minimizing your use of those allowed substances. Well, that's encouraging to hear that you have been to those meetings and you feel like they're doing a good job monitoring which chemical substances can be applied because for me and as any other lay person like it's hard for us mm -hmm. to decipher yeah. what naturally occurring thing is actually beneficial or could actually be harmful and it's really easy for people online to say well you know organic means they're still they can still use pesticides and it's it's like and then they're, they're gonna latch onto that and say like <laughs> your, your whole life is you a lie drink your roundup totally right <laughs> it's very frustrating it's very frustrating yeah so what but if I hear you saying this correctly, and I think others have echoed this point too, herbicides, pesticides, any input outside of your farm should be kind of last resort, use as basis. And there are other mechanisms that in organic farming we should be utilizing, like composting our waste from our animals and using rotational grazing and man maintaining pastures in a way that makes sense, having cover crops, all of this stuff, right? So it's okay that those those options are available to organic farmers they just shouldn't be used in the mindset of the kind of industrial commercial which is inputs 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 organic should be like okay wait what else can we do this is more complex basically yeah and and you know i understand kind of the hesitancy to to just say the system is perfect 
there are, um, uh, I'm trying, I'm spacing on the word, other substances that go within that mix. So say, say there's something that's approved, then it's vinegar based or something as an herbicide. There are other things that go into that product, like surfactants. Um, and the NOSB, the whole organic program has relied on the EPA to deem these as safer. And um, it's kind of a big black box and trust in the EPA that they've decided that these other additives to like the, the main ingredient that we have deemed safe in the organic program, inerts, I'm sorry, I was forgetting the word, the, the use mm -hmm. of these inerts can actually be like 99% of what's in the container. And so that's that's an area for concern. And the EPA has, you know, this one group that is only allowed in organic and they're, they're deeming, I don't know if you've seen that, the EPA safer list of inerts. That's what's allowed in organic. But it's still kind of this black box that I wish that we could kind of dive in as an organic community and the NOSB would take this on to really look at, at those e, that EPA list of safer inerts. So in general, like if you don't have to use anything, you shouldn't use it, even if it's on that list. And and that is kind of the mindset of an organic farmer is to really not need any of these. And we usually grow such a diversity so that, oh my gosh, the aphids are really bad on the peppers this year. We're going to have to till those under, you know, but if you have, and it's okay because our farm will survive economically without insurance because we have all these other crops, right? It's just a bad year for peppers. And you let your community know that sometimes you can get peppers from another farm, but when you have thousands of acres of peppers, you're going to end up wanting to save that crop because your financial viability as a farmer depends on using mm -hmm. that insecticide. So it's almost like a built-in system for biodiversity to make sure that you don't even need it. You don't even need to use that stuff. Mm. So we've talked about dairy produce. Let's talk about meat production a little bit under the USDA organic label and where it kind of falls based on your perception. So we have a huge problem in organic in that an organic cow can end up in a feedlot. So you could have this beautiful, you know, 100% grass-fed cow, and then they send it off, you know, for the last 20% of their life to an organic feedlot, which just means they're being fed organic grain. Better than a conventional feedlot, but not much, right? So that's a huge area of concern. And I um, also know that we have problems with... Um, where the animal is slaughtered that has to be organically approved so that when they wash down the slaughterhouse we were just talking about all of those you know inputs that you're allowed to use so you have to use safer disinfectants in the slaughterhouse and the slaughterhouse to go has to go through that certification process saying you know they can have conventional meat but there has to be an organic cleaning of the house before the meat is slaughtered there and that is a huge barrier for a lot of animals that are organically raised, but they can't get them slaughtered in an organic slaughterhouse because there just aren't that many of them. And so that's why you don't see the USDA organic seal on a lot of meat is just because of the lack of organically certified slaughterhouses. And so, I, I mean, I see both sides. We really want to be using safer materials to disinfect the slaughterhouse. We want to create the marketplace presence for that practice to, you know, people who, who that matters to can actually have that choice. Um, but, but in general, um, that just doesn't exist. The infrastructure isn't there. And so a lot of livestock just isn't certified organic because of that. Hmm. Which is why it's grass-fed everywhere, right? 
instead of USDA organic? Yes, yes, grass-fed, grass-finished. Under the USDA or organic label, let's talk about chickens and pigs. Yeah. Um, can they still be raised in confinement just being fed grain under organic labeling? Yes, they can. Not under the Real Organic Project seal, right? Because we're an add-on certification, so we require pasture for both. Right. But under USDA organic, yes, they can. And that's a problem. Mm. Yeah, I think it's twofold, right? It's like you, the, you're you certifying these operations organic based on what the animal is eating. So these confinement areas, they're, the grain or whatever mixture they're eating is, is certified organic. But it's also like lifestyle needs to be taken into account as well. Animal welfare, which is also kind of up to the producer to define what is positive animal welfare. And that's the complicated part. So um, chicken and pigs are hard because I think it's like, what, 97% of all pork and chicken in the United States is raised in confinement, I think, if that's correct. I've heard 99. Sector that's raised. So, yeah, it's a lot. Yes. And I've, yeah. It's a lot, right? So what about... Um, seafood this is always something because you just there it seems to not apply because mm -hmm. it's either wild caught or it's farmed mm -hmm. but is the organic label ever trying to capture anything on seafood yeah so that's that has been a tough one for me personally i'm married to a marine biologist and i have trouble eating any fish just because i know how overfished our oceans are and so we we tend to not eat mm. much seafood, which is a shame because I know it's really healthy and, and I love it. I wish we could have more sustainable fisheries. I think that would be the regulatory avenue to go down um, is just I, I'm not interested in eating um, farmed fish, you know, because you always they always talk about how sustainable they are. They don't really talk about the grain source that they use to feed their fish and how sustainable is that production. Um, so and I'm not really interested in eating like if you've seen them they're just like fish are so contained right and they're just swimming in each other's poop and stuff and i'm just not appealing to me plus the health of the that the oils and that fish right what your food ate they're eating grain they're not eating out there eating you know algae or their their uh their other forage fish and stuff like that so it's it's been shown salmon that's farm raised does not have the good oils in it that that a wild caught salmon does mm -hmm. So I think the avenue really to go down is, um, you know, more sustainable fisheries. Um, but I don't think we're even anywhere close to that. And I don't know that topic well enough to know where there have been successes. And maybe you could feel comfortable eating some some fish that it, it's more highly regulated. I'm sorry, I'm not very helpful mm, there. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I just think about it. You never see the USDA organic label no, even on any seafood. I've never seen it. It's either wild caught or it doesn't say Or anything, it doesn't right? say, or it'll yeah. say like line caught, which just means it was caught on a pole from a farm. Really? Like it's, oh yeah. They're throwing a line out there? I think, I now I could be wrong now that I'm saying it out loud because you can also, I'm not confirmed on that, but okay. I'm pretty sure line caught has been manipulated in some way. Shape, mm, I'm sure it has, right? Anybody who can make a buck off of a false label. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a lot about the USDA organic, which I love because I just want to bust some myths here is what I was trying mm -hmm. to say. 
dive into, and I know you've already covered this a little bit, but just talk to us a little bit more about the other ways that the Real Organic Project differentiates itself in terms of food, animal welfare, and the health of the customers eating the food. I'd say the biggest thing that we feel really strongly about is that we're farmer-led because what happened when a lot of these decisions were being made where organic went wrong, it was because members of the National Organic Standards Board or at the USDA just had no understanding of what organic agriculture is. And farmers really do. And especially organic farmers usually come to it because they believe in the values. And so they're continuously trying every year, trying to improve their operations in terms of how sustainable they are and push the envelope. And that's what we should be doing with our laws. They should be getting better and better, not worse and worse. So being farmer-led is a huge one. Um, When we first got formed, I don't know if you've heard of the regenerative organic certification, but that was coming out at about the same time. And they, at the time, had a standard that was no-till, completely no-till. And and the farmers were like, well, we grow cover crops, and then we incorporate those cover crops to be the fertilizer for the next year's crop. And a lot of our farmers have experimented with no-till, but they have to end up doing like minimum strip tillage, right? There's, There's a lot of different crops that maybe it doesn't work for, but it works for some. So it's this really nuanced discussion. Um, sometimes it works if you have a layer of plastic over it in a dry climate, because then that organic matter can break down better. If it just sits on the surface in a no-till, then that cover crop actually doesn't get cycled. Those, um, you know, it just sits on the surface. And so the breakdown doesn't occur to release the nutrients slowly for the next crop. So we really understand these issues as farmers. And it's really important that the standards are kind of led by farmers And there's um, a lot of European organizations that are organic organizations that are farmer led and, you know, with democratic boards. And we have mimicked our whole program around one called Naturaland, where they've got a um, kind of a series of farmers that are advisors, kind of a larger advisory board, and then a smaller 15 member standards board, which is what we have. So, you know, it's it's so frustrating to be like, oh, gosh, there's another add-on organic label, and that's regenerative organic certification. But we have this really big difference of opinion that, um, that the standards need to be led by farmers. And it's another, you know, it's a great thing. If I were grocery shopping, I would, I would look for that label, but it just had standards that our farmers weren't comfortable with. And so, um, anyway, I would say that that's the big one. We also really believe in... Um, being public about what's gone wrong with organic, not just telling the good stories, but because our farmers are in jeopardy of losing their markets over these issues, we feel it's really important for the consumer out there to kind of know that when you're purchasing that Driscoll's berry, that it's hydroponic. And maybe you should go out of your way to look for some soil-grown berries and start asking those questions because we need the eaters to kind of come with us if we're going to be successful. So we have been much more public about what's gone wrong with organic. And that has been really looked down upon by the organic bureaucrats and the organic brands in this world because they want to keep quiet, right? They don't want people to kind of run away from organic and just buy conventional food because, oh, there's all these problems with organic, right? So that's why it's like, hush, hush, don't talk about it. But meanwhile, our farms are dying. So the farmers are like, no, we need to talk about it because we're losing shelf space. And so that's been a huge difference Um, with how we've run this program. And it's been very controversial, to be honest, that we would even talk about these issues. And in our Mm -hmm. defense, it's an effort to try to solve them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think anytime a conversation is shut down <clears throat> for fear, it's it's just a bad move because the consumer, if anything, because we're so far removed, like we're not growing our own food, so we are having to rely on labels and different differentiating factors to tell us if this food is healthy or not, we need communicated to all the time. We need information. We need conversation. And so the moment that people are like, oh, don't talk about that. Um, I sometimes get hate from like the organic producers. I get hate from the conventional producers. I just make everyone mad <clears throat> for some reason. But like, it's just because we have conversations a lot on here with people in both camps. And we yeah. need to keep that conversation happening. And there are some things that conventional farmers are doing that are absolutely incredible for their environment. And it's like amazing. And then there are other things that organic producers are doing that I'm like, you could be doing that way better. And so it's not even like one is all good and one is all bad. But if there's not continuous dialogue, the consumer is not going to know anything. Mm. So I thank you for for being willing to point out the flaws and then also being willing to create the solution around it so for people who are shopping is there like a database that you guys have where you have your approved farmers or how does this show up on a food packaging is there a labeling um, tell us how you guys interact with your consumers no it's a great question i actually have the label here so if anybody's watching this on video you can see what it looks like it's a blue circle it says real organic mm. project it's got a yellow oh ribbon around it and it's in black and white too but um yeah how we're how we're communicating um the seal isn't out in the marketplace right now very much it is a little bit but it's it's really hard to find we're really excited so we've got a thousand farms it's been five years we really started from the grassroots level or let's have these conversations with these farmers let's figure out what the add-on standards should be where we're at as an organic community you know we added worker welfare standards which was controversial mm -hmm. some farmers were like you know i don't want you interviewing my farm workers um so that was something that we had to kind of bring all the farmers along to um, animal increased animal welfare standards we're actually the only standard that requires organic feed and pastured poultry and that's a beautiful thing if we can actually create a marketplace incentive to find both of those things in one place right now it's usually one or the other and a lot of the pasture is just bare dirt it's not real pasture but you know we have actual requirements of the vegetative cover and need to see those animals rotated in order to maintain that that cover so it's a it's a really beautiful thing but you know somebody said your standards are so high you're gonna die in beauty and I thought that was a really funny mm -hmm. statement. Like, you know, you could have a standard that's so strict that nobody qualifies for it. And our hope isn't to do that either. So we've, we've got a thousand farms right now. A lot of small farms end up dropping their organic certification. So we have kind of a turnover um, mm. where they realize they just don't need it anymore. They're shrinking their farm down or a lot of organic farmers are retiring. So we lose about a hundred farms a year. And then we certify, you know, between 200 and 300 new farms every year. So the program's growing, but it's just going to take some time to see it out in the marketplace. But we did get, it's free to all farmers to do if you're certified organic. So it is an add on and you've already done so much work. I don't know if you've ever talked to a farmer about how much it takes to go through that organic certification, yeah. but it is rigorous. And so we are adding on to that and just ensuring that the pasturing has happened, ensuring that, you know, the chickens and the animals and that the soil health is actually real. Um, and so our entire inspection process is out in the field. Whereas when you go through an organic certification, I just did one a couple days ago and it was six hours, you know, behind the desk showing receipts. So I've already done all that. 
the guy literally walked the farm in 20 minutes. I couldn't believe it. And we didn't have any discussions about how I'm fostering fertility in the soil. You know, it was all like proof on paper, which you can fake, honestly, you can fake paperwork, right? But you can't fake what you see in the field. So I think it's really important mm -hmm. to have those conversations in the field. Show me your cover crops, show me your composting, you know, show me the, the green vegetation that you have between the rows for your beneficial insectary. So anyway, my point is it's going to take a little while because we have such strict standards. I, you know, I, I don't think we're going to die in beauty, but I think it's a really beautiful thing when you do see this label in the store. I think there's a, a ton of integrity behind it and it's completely transparent. Every farm that has, you know, given product to be in that is going, you are going to know who they are. So there's no way to kind of greenwash and, you know, just put our best farm on the cover, right. And then have a bunch of product from something else in there too. Um, and finally, we got a, um, all of this is funded by eaters. And so we got a, a $75,000 grant to actually um, create an online store because so many of our farms, because they can't get shelf space, we have a blueberry farmer in Florida that literally has been completely replaced on the shelf. He was on uh, at Whole Foods and now it's hydroponic berries. He just cannot get shelf space anymore. Um, and so he's, he shifted, uh, shifted his business entirely to shipping and now you can, um, purchase from these farmers. So there's, there's really beautiful products. There's einkorn flour and, you know, the, the whole einkorn berries, there's all kinds of dried fruit. Anyway, we are, uh, it's going to be launched in, um, October or sometime this fall, um, and a whole online from our thousand farms, you know, whichever farms ship online you can actually purchase from them on our website. And we've also got the whole map of all the other farms and you know the grocery stores that they're selling to the farmer's markets, whether or not they have a CSA. So we're gonna try to make it um, easier for you to find our stuff, even though we're having a really difficult time finding shelf space for our farmers, um, just because mm. it costs more to produce food this way. But I believe you should have the choice, right? And we're sort of losing those choices because it's so confusing to figure out what these labels mean in the store. And I'm sorry mm -hmm. to add that, to that confusion by creating another label. But um, <laughs> we hope with that full transparency that there's going to be continued integrity and also that conflict of interest with you're paying me to get certified. It's always like, oh, this is a huge farm. We get a lot of our money from this farm. There's that pressure yeah. to accept them, you know? Um, so because so many eaters have supported us, we've been able to kind of keep that conflict of interest out. It's no problem if we have to drop a farm. Uh, we don't lose any money from that. Hmm. Would you guys in the future ever accept someone who has chosen to not participate in the USDA organics program and just say, hey, I just want to go straight for the real organic project? I think we, we would do that if we got a lot more funding. And I know that sounds very self-serving, but that process that I just explained six hours, I had to prove that I was sourcing organic seed from my hundred varieties of you know, and that's, we can't kind of abandon this idea that we're actually, you know, proving, you know, we're showing receipts. Um, we, we can't completely abandon that. So if, if we do, and I think we could do a better job um, than the USDA is doing, um, we would need a lot. We couldn't make this free for the farmers. We would need a lot more funding to actually, okay, well, show me, show me the seeds that you bought this year. You know, show me your seed packets. Let's talk about why this lettuce, literally every variety of lettuce that there is, is available organically. It's, it's, or it's like a comparatively equal variety. You know what I mean? There's so many different names that it's really actually the same genetics under that, um, 
for, I don't know if you know this about seed. It's like any company can just say, oh, this is a new variety and it's a new name and they kind of patent it and it's genetically similar to another one. So that's the loophole that people get around in order to avoid buying organic seed. They're like, I can't get this variety available organically. And so they make a new name and, um, you know, they continue to purchase conventional seed. But we need to apply pressure to continue to kind of foster this whole organic landscape, um, you know, from seed all the way to through the processing. So for the certification, currently it's a pickup or an add-on, whatever you want to call it, that you would attain post having been approved by the USDA organic uh, process. And then, but that's free. So that's free for people that have already done that. And then if, if you haven't done that, which I'm, I'm, I'm hearing isn't currently accessible, but maybe right. in the future be something that could be paid. I think if someone future. came to us and said, I have $10 million, would you run a standalone program to the USDA? We might say yes. <laughs> it's been controversial because hey. a lot of our farmers <laughs> depend on the USDA organic seal for their markets. So we'd be competing mm. with that. Um, but honestly, it's, there are a lot of farmers that are so fed up that feel like reform is never going to happen that they would be willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, you had mentioned composting. I just didn't want to lose that because I'm kind of curious. Uh, quickly, give me a rundown of, I, I haven't heard many people tell me that they're super excited about <laughs> composting. I could talk but, about uh, compost all day. It's what, my favorite thing. <laughs> give, give, give me a, so you're composting, I assume, at your place. Yes. And the reason I'm asking to, to help kind of maybe shape the conversation is, you know, how can people that maybe live in suburbia do a really good job of this? And how can this help support our lives? Yeah. Why should we be excited about worms? <laughs> worms are a great way. If you're, if you have absolutely no dirt, you could get one of those worm composting bins. And then that creates this beautiful compost tea from the worms too. And it's so biologically active. So most of the excitement that I get around compost is the complexity of the life that's breaking that stuff down. And of course, the complexity in the compost is all dependent on what you put into it. And so most basic, you want to make sure that your carbon to nitrogen ratio is, you know, about three to one, three times more carbon than, than green material. And it's such, it's something we're going to have to figure out in the future, right? I feel like someday we're going to look back and think about the fact that we flushed our, with our fresh potable water, our, you know, nitrogen waste, our, our pee and poo just got mixed with potable water and we just flushed it away never to be seen again. And of course the organic community saw, well, we're not going to put that stuff back on our fields because people put Drano down there and all kinds of stuff. And so they saw kind of foresaw, they didn't know it was going to be called PFAS, but they foresaw the complications of all that. But I think in the future, we're going to have to figure out how to clean up our waste system. So um, I get a lot of material from my local community um, in the form of something that we can compost. And I, I feel like I've made vegetarian compost. I've made, you know, kind of manure, hotter compost. And the quality of the product that comes out at the end is something that it, it's always changing. And I love trying to figure out, okay, with this type of compost, like I've created kind of a diversified cover crop in our South field, and I've made compost that's only vegetable material. And then the results are just so beautiful on my tomato plants. And you can kind of compare that to, you know, maybe some composted um, 
uh, you know, there's a lot of manure out there because there's so much confinement. And so, you know, it's a great way to kind of figure out how to use all of this nitrogen material. And, you know, people, um, there's a whole development next door and all of their grass clippings and all of their leaves were going to the dump, which creates methane. And so I, I accept that on. But I have to be really careful that there aren't any materials that will stick around. Um, and there are some really long lasting herbicides in general mm. are really long lasting. There's amino pyrolids are a brand new chemistry because so many weeds are resistant to the Dow. Um, Dow's been creating them, but, but also uh, 2,4-D was like such a huge one and they've been spraying it forever. And now the thistle and a lot of the weeds are resistant to that. So Dow created a new chemistry that's hormone-based. And so the smallest quantities, right? And the EPA ranked this as safest to use because the smallest quantities are required, but they're hormone-like, which means that in the parts per billion, they're still affecting our crop plants and they're not breaking down um, in the 10 years that you know it takes to compost. Um, so it's pretty shocking how long these things are lasting in our environment. So that's a really long... Um, kind of giving you little touch points of what you could look into um, if you're into composting. But, uh, you know, we've had a lot of carryover issues, so we have to be very careful with the material that we bring in. If we do bring it in and there is contamination, we just make sure that it's well irrigated, well turned, and it takes a lot longer to break down. But as a society, this is our future. we got to figure this out, mm -hmm. and we got to figure out how to break down these, these contaminants or just not produce them anymore, right? Not depend on all this gross stuff. We don't need it. There's there's safer alternatives to everything out there. We don't need Drano. Mm -hmm. There's safer safer alternatives. Yeah, this this reminds me of the conversation around sewage sludge or biosolids, right? Because yes. they're trying to make use of this physical wastewater treatment left over and apply it to agricultural land, which thank God it's not allowed in the USDA organic label because right. we now know it's incredibly high with PFAS and now it's just wrecking ecosystems. Yeah. But the vast majority of people have no idea that the EPA says this is a beneficial use and it's just mind-blowing and I think when you see that as the example of what the EPA is saying is fine <laughs> and then now they're like backpedaling and saying oh my right. goodness no we have so many you have to be your own advocate and be more cautious than you are willing to accept the marketplace as is I am an incredibly cautious consumer <laughs> I will wait a long time before I accept a new technology or whatever and it's for that very reason so I know that some people listening might be like oh well we try to do that by taking the municipal wastewater you know excess solids and it's this amazing but beneficial use no it's not and it's not allowed in organics for a reason and it's definitely not allowed in the real organic project. So, so. so to, to touch on this, I know we've talked about it before, and I'm on this podcast, and I, I also need a refresher, that there there's, so there's organizations or companies that will collect the waste from like a, from like a sewage plant. I, I don't know. Like other plants. I'm just imagining like a smokestack kind of like place <laughs> that collects all a the- A water treatment facility. Yeah. Just yeah. all the- Toilet or, flushed stuff. Mm -hmm. Anything flushed down your toilet, your hospitals, your offices. And then I'm assuming they're like macerating it up and putting it into a tanker. 
And then that tanker drives it to a cornfield and sprays on the cornfield. Is, is this like a very, very rough? There's something called biosolids that's left over. There's these series of ponds and pools and the bacteria kind of break them down. They give kind of a school tour. You know, I don't know if you ever did that. You go to a wastewater treatment plant and you see the tour. But the bacteria kind of break them down and they have all these separate pools. And the water kind of drains off and goes to the other pools from the surface as more stuff comes in. And stuff sinks to the bottom. And those are the biosolids. And that's what's then put onto the fields because what are we supposed to do with all this stuff, right? And they've been applying Mm -hmm. that to fields since the 70s was really when it started. And a number of organic farmers have come forward and found PFAS, these kind of forever materials that just don't break down. And it's really sad. They found it in organic milk um, from applications that occurred in the 70s. So this is land that's been organic you know, for 20 years or something like that. And then the milk is getting contaminated because the pastures that these cows are eating have these forever materials in in the growing pasture. So that's how long it's lasting. And of course, it's these really authentic organic farmers that care about the purity of their product that are coming forward and saying, you can't drink our milk right now, right? We have to move farms or we have to clean up this contamination. Um, You know, like put the cows somewhere else where there is none of this PFAS. But when the USDA uh, passed the regulations in 1990, they said, okay, these are great regulations from the organic community, but we want to change several things. And one of them was we want to be able to add these biosolids to, to, to organic fields. And you have never seen so much outroar from the organic community. And they stopped that, thank goodness, because this was mm-hmm. before we even knew about PFAS contamination. Mm-hmm. So they, I think chemicals. organic tends to just see that everything's connected, right? Mm-hmm that so these chemicals and, and i agree with you everything is i, th- I do think everything is connected and, uh, but like the, the, we're assuming these chemicals are coming from stuff we dump down the drain mm-hmm. right so it's not just like from what we're eating and drinking and like our our like excrements it's, it's like what we're dumping down the drain all that stuff is ending up in these ponds is that is that what we're saying yep so the draino the the whatever anything else you can imagine down that the, goes the, down a drain yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and, does, and they don't break down. <laughs> it is gross. <laughs> but we need to figure out how to, you oh, know, yeah. not to find alternatives to all these chemicals. Maybe if we didn't have, maybe if we had all had composting toilets, we wouldn't need to use Drano, right? Mm-hmm. It gets a little bit more complicated when we start talking about medications for people, right? That ends up going through us. So we're going to have to figure out maybe there's fungi and bacteria that can break some of these things down, or maybe we reapply um, this composted material. I, I really believe in composting toilets, not that I'm allowed to do that um, and or, or that it should be put back on food, but I think we need to figure that out, um, you know, where to put it for, for the future, because mm-hmm. there's so much methane that's released from the current systems that we have from those, those cesspools that I was talking about. Yeah, it's a brave new world. Yeah, We've got a lot of problems to solve. <laughs> I was going to say, that's something people don't consider. It's like it's like with your garbage. Like you just put it on the street and you just never think about it again. You flush it down yeah. the to- toilet, you never think about, think about it again. And so there's, and I always think back to like, okay, what did we do before? Well, there, there were issues when we had poor sanitation and it was like flooding the streets when we became urbanized, right? So that's where the breakdown comes like you just you probably can't live so close to other people if you're gonna bury your situation <laughs> right you we know just need a new so system. An, an entirely new 
new system. Yeah. So, so compost. Any other more questions? All the young people who are out there listening, start studying compost because it's our future. Mm-hmm. I dig it. <laughs> um, Lindley, any questions for us before we kind of move on here? I, I, I had composting written down. Did you have anything written down, Elizabeth? No, I was. Uh, well, the only thing I was going to say is that when you were discussing earlier the we have these systems in place right we have the public education system which i actually don't call it public school anymore i call it government funded school because that's (laughs) what it is we have the um these various regulatory agencies overseeing our food being grown right and we have all of these segmented bits of society and we feel this tension because we are outsourcing all of these things that at one point we weren't outsourcing. So at one point we were growing our own food and it wasn't an issue. We were hunting, we were foraging, we were gathering. One point we had our kids in our home or collected or in our community and we were a part of that. Now you don't even maybe know who your teacher is until you meet them on the first day of school. Like there's just all this disconnection leads to these pain points and stressors so it's it's a twofold solution where one we have to create better communication and labeling and certification as exactly what you're doing and two where appropriate we can opt out of certain systems and we can say "Eh, I'm gonna grow part of my own food and not worry about that I'm now curious if there were organic berries I just bought were hydroponically grown so it's like I'm gonna maybe invest in some raspberry bushes instead or I'm going to pull my kid out of this schooling situation and bring them home any any solution like that I think it can be twofold we have to one create solutions so that people choosing the system are benefited and also you can say no to the system is is basically my point so that was the only I was gonna say that in the outro but I I would be curious just to hear your thoughts on that too Lindley oh so much I mean I am benefiting from a a wonderful public school system that I send my daughter to but I agree with you if I didn't like the school system I would love to be able to school her at home and have that option I think I think transparent choices is the theme here right if you don't Mm -hmm. like you said it's very confusing looking at these labels I myself get confused when I go to the grocery store and I see pastured and then I'm like, well, is that really pasture? <laughs> you know, like I'm, there's no regulation over that word. I don't trust it, you know? And so I think full transparency is what is lacking. And that's, that's what we're trying to bring back. If, if that were the theme of the day, I think that's what we need better. And, and mm. I, I wish it would come from the USDA, but because it's not, you know, we've come together to try to provide it, but it's going to take some time to build this, right? That's amazing. Lily, how can people find you? How can people support the Real Organic Project? Uh, give me some give me some websites and uh, you know and whatnot. We have a really fun homegrown website right now, but it's about to be kind of relaunched this fall. But there's so much on there. We have a podcast. I think there's like 140 episodes or something like that. Really great guests. Um, so so spend some time on our podcast. It's on a YouTube channel as well. We have our first symposium is all available for free. It was like 12 hours long. So it's you know better than any Netflix series. Just start watching that and you can see some pesky farmers talk about all these issues. Um, yeah, well, we're about to have that store. That's, that's what I'm most excited about. So, um, you know, keep an eye out for uh, this fall for the relaunch of the website and then go shopping and you're going to get some amazing food. 
Um, so hopefully you can find some locally available and don't need to depend on the shipping, but there's some really special things that you can get shipped to you as well. Does that help? I dig it. <laughs> That's awesome. outstanding. I dig that. Lily, it's been an outstanding honor to have you with us today. And um, I'm guessing we'll probably be touching base with you very soon. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Liz and Joey. It's really fun to be here. And with that, Lindley Dixon has left the virtual chat. I just want to say your shirt choice for today was great. You're going to have to go to the YouTube channel that we will eventually post this on <laughs> to see what Elizabeth's talking about. Joey's wearing the pasture raised over pasteurized t-shirt that I made for homegrown. We sold, I don't know, it for like a month or something. They're great shirts. I'm kind of OG. High quality one. organic cotton. It was just so expensive to ship. We were actually losing money on the t-shirt. It was like we were trying to give away t-shirts, but make people pay for them. It was an interesting. It was an interesting thing. But regardless. Here we are. Here we are. Lindley. Lindley is amazing. Real organic project. Mm -hmm. Have I, had I heard about that set before this? I don't know that I feel you like have talked about it. I for sure am, have been familiar with them for okay. a while. Do, do they have? She mentioned, you know, having a new website coming up. Are they at, like are they on social media? Like mm -hmm. other websites we can go to? Mm -hmm. okay. Is it just oh, yeah. at the Real Organic Project? Mm -hmm. Okay, right on. I'll have to check that out. And you know, anyone else listening to this should assume there might be people hearing this. I don't know. Anyways, um, final thoughts, Lindley. Well, you made me say my final thought when we were on the show. I was going to save it for the outro, but I'll just reiterate my thoughts. Basically, we're stuck in this uh, in a bit of a conundrum because part of me wants to be like, we don't need certification. Mm -hmm. We don't need it. Just know your farmer. Mm -hmm. Just know them. My dairy farmer isn't USDA certified. Mm -hmm. My beef rancher isn't USDA certified. But I know that the food they produce is better than anything I've ever totally. had. And the other part of me is like, Liz, let's be realistic. We need to have a uh, common language, common ground, because not everyone can know their farmer. And which uh, even that I'm like, mm, with the with the Internet, you can go on YouTube. If you can go to a library, log on to YouTube and you could probably figure out a farmer who's sharing their story, connecting with them. Now, they might not be local to you, but you can at least learn enough about the agriculture to have a common language with a food producer. Now, is everyone buying it straight from them? Probably not. But so I, I love the Real Organic Project for offering an accelerated, not accelerated, a superior level of standard that the USDA is just not upholding. Mm -hmm. And the other part of me is like, I still believe that you can buy amazing food even if it isn't certified. Mm. So the, that's just the tension I live in. I think, I agree with that. It's like in a, in a perfect world, we would all know grow our, our farmer, food. grow our own food, trade and barter. And, but it's like, at the same time, if we got back there, we might be having the same conversation and saying like, hey, in a perfect world, we could have mass production of really healthy, good food. Because the grass is always going to be greener. And, yeah. and we're all we're, like the production and the advancement of humanity. Innovation is always going to have to come somewhere. Yeah. And whenever we get to a place where we're like unhappy with how things are changing, whether it's because we're afraid of change or because that change is actually unhealthy and potentially damaging to us, you, you could have conversations around, you know, uh, 
social media and AI and immersive environments to farming and agriculture to carbon emissions to you know driving cars and just dangers right from that tech brings you can also look at all those things and say man look at where we'd be without this mm -hmm. i mean like we wouldn't be able to be having this conversation right now without the tech that provides us a platform to talk and let people hear us it's just it's such a it's such an interesting like dynamic and it's like whenever we're having these conversations of let's take away the the labels so that we can get back to knowing your farmer i'm always kind of like man I don't think either extreme is ever going to work out best for us. Yeah. We have to live in the time we're in. And I, I do believe innovating with what we have, the work that Lindley's doing and the Real Organic Project, it just makes sense to me. It makes sense. It's, 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 it's providing streamlined communication and transparency so people understand what's going on with the farms that they might be buying from. Mm -hmm. And so I'm down for that what it's not doing is having some ambiguous like like label that they're, they're throwing on to packages and saying hey you should trust us it's saying hey um here's here's where you can go to figure out whether or not this is something that you're interested in buying mm -hmm. i like that that's cool it's uh it's it's kind of creating the um the get to know your farmer at scale mm -hmm. if you will yeah i dig it i really thought you were going to use that as your segue is that why you were smiling What's that? Well, you're just talking about how, you know, we can create common language and you can know your producer and thought you were going to say it. <laughs> and anyways, we also have other ways you can learn. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you didn't let me finish the segue. I'm sorry. But now that we're there, we have devices for you to continue learning. And some of those, th those devices are resources we've created. We've got free things like the... Raw Dairy Guide and the Sourdough Guide get you in the game on understanding more about your bread, how to make it, and your dairy, how to buy it, where to find it. We've talked a lot about that today. We, it always comes back to dairy. Right? I feel like we're always talking about dairy because we're down for it. Yeah, it's a staple food. Homegrowneducation.org. You can find those resources and others, things that you can teach your kids, things you can use to teach yourself. We've got recipe guides that help you map out weeks at a time for dinner and for breakfast to make sure that you're making meals that are nourishing but also delicious so get on there find those things homegrowneducation.org we've also got a store where we sell things it's called shoptheh.com hazelmeyer goods if you will tea that we're drinking today hazelmeyer goods tea lavender earl gray just fire our tea is ridiculous. If you haven't bought the tea from Hazelmeyer Goods, if you're hearing this right now, and you have, and you like tea, I guess yeah, that would be a contingency. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm sad for you that you haven't tried the tea. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Get on there, shoptheh.com, get some tea. We've got proofing baskets that this innovative design that we've worked with this manufacturer to create this artisan. It's like a person, and like she just brought in another person to kind of keep up with the demand because we're selling so many of these proofing baskets. They're awesome. They're awesome. Hand-woven cotton proofing baskets. We just launched the 10-inch round. Mm -hmm. So if you're making those big loaves, you're one of those big loaf people. We've got those for you. And more to come. Some exciting things to come. The bread box is in the works. People know about the bread box. The bread box is in the works. We're launching a wooden whisk by the time a this episode whisk. drops. That's true. All wooden. It's kind of awesome. You know, it's the funniest thing. I We did a product launch 
dropped earlier this week. Mm-hmm. And the same person that makes our wooden spatula or spurtle that comes in the sourdough kit, that's already on the thing but mm-hmm. we release that on its own mm-hmm. so people because people were asking they're like okay i already have bannetons but like i want the wooden spurtle mm-hmm. basically and what i said you know it's handcrafted it's handmade and and some of the response was like but where from by who and yeah. i was like it, it's he's so localized he doesn't Dude, even have <laughs> it, it's his garage so so the bread box which there's one that the, one of the prototypes is behind us here you can't see it in this video but the the carpenter different different person that makes the bread boxes that we've been working with when we were talking about it initially it was like i don't know you know he built one prototype and then we're on the second prototype but we're just about to finish it there's a couple more tweaks that we're going to make to make sure this thing is like the bread box that you'll use for the rest of your life and then pass it on to your next generation i just feel like there's not enough products like that in the world these days like i feel like nowadays we're buying houses that are you know you go walk through it and then they, they drive it in on a trailer and plop it off in the ground. Like there's just so much stuff being mass manufactured these days. When, when I was watching my dad and his parents pass away and all the things that were passed down to him that he could tell me the stories about with those things. And I remember him being like, yeah, these pans, you know, like, and they were all like good to go. Man, you go to, you go to like, you know, Walmart and you buy, these mass manufactured pans today it's like you're buying disposable stuff mm-hmm. and i'm just kind of i'm kind of over that mm-hmm. and so the bread box is not meant to be a disposable item mm-hmm. uh, we want it to be something that if it were to get damaged you go you, like we're gonna like let's get these things repaired not that we would repair them but it's like man bring somebody in let's take a look at this thing let's get it let's get it fixed up hey, I'm, put some modifications on mine i can't wait to see the pictures of people that are using them and you know people are talking about wanting to install like knife magnets on the side of them mm-hmm. i'm just like i'm in i want to see what people are up to i can't wait to see it uh but anyways talking to this guy he finally he finally made a few of them he's like I, if i make jigs and i you know i can really mass manufacture i might be able to make a lot of them when we sent our first like kind of order amount because you know we've begun placing orders for these things he was like holy smokes this is amazing he was so stoked that he could manufacture these out of his house and be home with his kids rather than running around the city doing carpentry gigs. Mm. And that's just like, it made me so excited. I love putting money in this person's pocket. He's also a personal friend, so. Love putting money in that person's pocket. Mm-hmm. So if you're out there and you're hearing this, buy a bread box so this guy can keep staying at home with his kids, making money, doing what he loves. I love that. It makes me excited. Additionally, YouTube. You can find this on YouTube. We're there. Homegrown education. Homegrown underscore education. YouTube. Find us there. You can look at us talking and see my awesome <laughs> shirt. It's pretty cool. You know, we drink tea and or coffee while we're down here and we've got a cow behind us. Mm, Lily. You might be missing out on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also find us if you want to hear more or see us more on Instagram. Elizabeth is at Liz Hazelmer. I'm at Joey Hazelmer and we have homegrown underscore education. And until next time. That's a wrap.